Is that right? Got it right. Technology, amazing. Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year, especially to those who weren't here last week. Um, I pray and hope that your faith is up to the challenges that uh, 2023 brings, because uh, I believe there are going to be challenges, just like there were last year, but uh, God is up to uh, coping with everything, and, uh, and we in him are more than conquerors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we open our hearts to you now. We pray that uh, the words of my mouth might be pleasing to you and that our hearts might be open to hear what you have to say and that uh, they might build into our lives uh, things that we can uh, do to, to, to live and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, today is the second week of, some, of uh, doing something a little bit different. As I, For those who weren't here last week, um, I'm taking the first two weeks this year to uh, try and encourage us to, to get the most out of the Bible. And I was focusing on uh, two areas of the Bible which are often uh, difficult for Christians to read, uh, and often not read there very much, and uh, giving some principles on how to read them and to, uh, and to, uh, and, and to, and to cope with, that, with those. The first part last week was the, the history books. So it looks like, uh, and I gave the, the challenge of reading uh, One and Two Kings, which is uh, about 50 or 60 pages. Um, we're not talking about reading in detailed study, just reading the same way you would read any other book. Um, and uh, I, my hope was that uh, many of us might, in these times of, uh, of uh, holiday, that we might otherwise be uh, relaxing and maybe reading a, a book. So I was suggesting why not read the books of the Bible instead, uh, instead of reading uh, Tom Clancy or uh, Mills and Boone or whatever else your fancy happens to be. Um, so last week we talked about the, uh, the, the history books. This week we're going to be talking about the prophetic books. Um, to, just to recap before we start, I, uh, on uh, some important principles I said, how we actually are to read these, uh, these books of the Bible, um, and in fact how, we, how in general we're supposed to read the, the books uh, in general. And there's basically five principles which I explained last week, which I want to just quick, quickly go over because they're important as general principles. So here's what I said last week were the steps to reading the Bible well. First point is um, we should focus on books before focusing on chapters and verses. I actually think, you know, that um, putting chapter and verse headings in the Bible can actually be counterproductive because they were not there in the original. They're only there as references so that you can actually find what you're looking for. But then, you know, when Paul wrote his letters, he didn't say chapter one, dot, 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 chapter two, dot, dot, dot. He just wrote a letter the same way that you and I would write a letter. And although it's good for reference purposes, um, it can encourage us to treat each individual verse and each individual chapter as if it exists on its own. Um, and often we therefore read them without actually understanding what's gone before and what's gone after. So I want to uh, focus on books rather than chapters and verses and just reading the whole thing as it was written. Um, the second point is that in order to understand it, because it's actually the words of men and women, in fact men because I don't think there are any female writers, but it's because it's the word of human beings, um, we need to understand the human context because God actually speaks through human issues. So we need to take some time to understand what the context was of the person who was writing, um, who the author was, who their audience was, when they were writing, what was happening at that time in the person's life that, that uh, prompted them to do the writing. And 
you know, and understand all those sorts of issues before we can really understand what the message of the, of the text is. The third thing we need to do is understand uh, what we call the genre, which is the type of literature. Are we talking about poetry? Are we talking about prose? Are we talking about history? Are we talking about myth? Are we talking about a prophecy? All of these things are different types of, uh, of, uh, of writing. And, uh, you know, and it actually makes a difference um, if we uh, understand correctly or misunderstand what the, the, the sort of message is. Uh, having done all of that, we're then in a position where we can have some sort of understanding of what the main message of the original text was in the original context. And, you know, it's often a flaw we often make these days is we read into the Bible or we look to find in the Bible what we want to find rather than what the original author was trying to say. Technically, we call that eisegesis, reading into, rather than exegesis, which is reading out from. And, you know, we, 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 it's very, it's very uh, uh, natural thing to do. We say, you know, I want to know the answer to a particular question, so I'll turn to the Bible and look for it. And we try and find the answer in the text when, you know, it might have been an issue that was never an issue for the, uh, for the original uh, people. Um, it's important that we don't do that or avoid doing that as much as possible, but rather try and find what the original message was. And that leads into the final part, step five, which is that having done all of that, understood the main message in the original context, we're then in a position to assess what the message might be for us today by jumping that gap from original author, original context, to me in my context. Okay, so that's, uh, that's the general principles of how one should read the scriptures. Um, Let's get on to the main meat of our thing, the, the prophetic books. So by the prophetic books, we're talking about the books in the, in the Old Testament from basically from Isaiah right through to the end of the Old Testament. So it's a good section of the, uh, of the Old Testament. There's 13 separate prophets uh, who, who, who wrote. And uh, so the uh, first thing we've got to understand is what do we actually mean by prophets? Who were these men? who prophesied, and what were they doing? Well, first thing to point out is that in common usage, we talk about prophets uh, in, and, uh, in ways that are not what the Bible means by prophets. So there's two things I want to point out first. The prophets are not, right? These are the things that, that are uh, common concepts about prophets which aren't correct. The first is that um, a prophet in the Bible is not a religious authority figure. So, for example, uh, uh, our uh, Muslim friends talk about Muhammad as being their prophet. What they mean by that is that he's the authority figure in their religion. What he says goes. And in some senses, we might talk about Moses in the Old Testament or even Jesus in the New Testament as a prophet in that sense. Well, that's not what the Bible means by a prophet. Now, some prophets do have uh, authority. That's not to be denied, but that's not the essential element of what a prophet is. So a prophet is not just a religious authority figure, someone we have to obey. Um, and secondly, a prophet is not someone who simply predicts the future, like we might talk about. It. There's, in fact, there's actually talk at the moment that 2023 is supposedly going to be a, an important year for followers of Nostradamus. Um, every year seems to be important for the followers of Nostradamus. But, but Nostradamus is, is a figure in our culture who is somebody who allegedly predicted the future and is therefore seen as some sort of prophet. 
A prophet is not someone who predicts the future. Interesting thing is that prophets actually do predict the future. Most of, the, most of what they do is future, because, but it's not the element of what they, they, they do. Right? A biblical prophet is not there to satisfy your curiosity or my curiosity about what is going to happen in the future. Uh, when they do predict the future... It is within the context of God is saying something in response to a situation and his, the, the future is being predicted in the sense that the prophet is saying that this is how God is going to respond to the situation, right? And often that prophecy, that prediction, is very short term. So the simplest example is going right back to the very beginning of the Bible where God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, if you eat of this tree you will die. See, that's a prediction, right? It was a prediction that was very quickly fulfilled because they ate of the tree and they died. But it wasn't, God wasn't saying that to give them some sort of uh, um, lurid information about what was going to happen around the corner in their life. It was a warning. It was saying, if you do this, this is going to happen as a consequence. And that's the, the mode in which prophets actually speak and they predict the future. That's very important. I mean, we're not going to be talking about this today, but for example, when you come to end times prophecy, the biggest mistake people make with end times prophecy is they make all of the mistakes I've been talking about. They start with, they look at the world and they see, you know, COVID or invasion of Ukraine or whatever happens to be going on at the moment, and they say, let's look into the Bible and see where they're predicted. And of course, if you look for something like that, you can find it. What they're doing is looking for someone to satisfy their curiosity about the future. God's not interested in satisfying our curiosity about the future, right? God does have the future in control, and sometimes he will tell us things that are going to happen, but it's not to satisfy our curiosity or our fear about, or our insecurity, shall we say, about what's going on in our lives. So prophets are not people who predict the future. Well, what are prophets? Prophets are people who speak on God's behalf under the Spirit's anointing. That's the essential element. They're, they're speaking and they're doing it on God's behalf. So God is actually calling them to speak and have a message for the people that they're speaking to. Um, one, uh, one thing that they talk about them in the Old Testament is they call them, I like this term, it makes it sound like a bit of a strong man, but they, they often call them covenant enforcers. Right, so context there being that God had a covenant with His people. On time, at times the people went astray, so God raised up a prophet to to strong arm the people and say, "This is what you need to do to come back." Right, covenant enforces. It's a good sound that I think, but yeah, you get the picture. Um, well, let's uh, quickly do a contrast between the prophetic ministry and the teaching ministry. So, teaching ministry. Um, is about ministry where we talk about what in general is true, right? So if I say to you, uh, Jesus wants you to love your enemies. Now, that's a general statement of truth, isn't it? We know that's true at all times and all contexts. That's teaching. To take that scripture and expound it out, that's the, the gift of teaching. Prophecy goes is, is more specific and says, that um, takes that teaching, which is generally true, and particularizes it to a situation. 
So, for example, as I said, saying to, saying to a church, you need to love your, love your enemies, that's teaching. But if, and I'm not saying this is true, but if I was to say, North Church, you're not loving people as you need to, and that's particularly what you need to do at the moment, that would be prophetic. You see what I'm saying? It's particularising the word of God into a particular situation. Okay, a brief history of prophecy in the Bible so we understand where we're coming from. Prophecy existed sporadically from the earliest days of the Bible. We think about in the book of Genesis, we have people like Melchizedek. Uh, there's a strange character in the book of Numbers called Balaam, who was uh, the one time both a prophet and also a, <laughs> an evil idolater. So what exactly he was, nobody really knows. But he's certainly referred to as a prophet in very early days. We go into the book of Judges, and we see that the judges were forms of prophets who uh, sometimes spoke but also acted under the anointing of the Spirit. Um, when we come along to Samuel, at the start of 1 Samuel, we see that Samuel was definitely raised up as a prophet, and in fact he actually trained prophets after him. They called them the school of the prophets, so people were being trained to prophesy. When we get on to the height of the kingdom under King David, we read about Nathan and others who were actually official prophets that David actually appointed because he loved God. He wanted to know what God was saying, so he actually found people to raise up as prophets and actually paid them to actually speak the word of God to him. Of course, as the kingdom developed and turned, uh, and turned sour, obviously that... Uh, that official capacity of the prophets became corrupted as well. And we read later of the, you know, the evil kings had 300 prophecies, 300 prophets standing in their courts who were all just yes men telling the king what he wanted to hear. But I guess that's to be expected in the knowing human nature. We then get on in the ninth century before Christ. We read about Elijah and Elisha, who are two of the major prophets that we read about, who not only spoke courageously, they also acted courageously. Uh, the first writing, what we call writing prophets, that is the ones who actually wrote their messages down, or at least if, if the others did write it down, we don't have any record of it, but the, one, the ones we call the first writing prophets were Amos and Hosea, who were in the 8th century BC. In the later years of God's kingdom, of the, uh, the, the, the kingdom of Judah, um, there were a number of prophets raised up. Uh, basically because the kingdom was, uh, people were moving in, in, uh, down a, a reckless path towards destruction and God raised up prophets uh, to, to uh, rebuke them and to correct them. And of course, after the end of the kingdom, in, in the 6th century BC, uh, God later raised up prophets to encourage them as they came back to uh, being re, uh, uh, their lives to being put on their place. So at each stage, the prophets are actually speaking what God wanted in context to say to his people. Oops, the day's here. for that. Okay, so how are we supposed to read these prophetic books? So I said, what are we talking about? We're talking about the books from Isaiah to Malachi. Why were they written? They were written to tell God's people of his requirements in their given context. They were also written to explain God's priorities. Um, that's a very interesting and important point to realise. 
the text I've written down as a good example of that is Micah 6.8, a famous verse where the prophet says, what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God? Now, the interesting thing about that verse is that you don't actually need to read Micah to know that that's true. If you actually read the Old Testament law, that is exactly the point that's coming out. But unfortunately, it's a point that often gets lost because people don't see the priority as God sees it. So what Micah is doing there is he's not saying anything particularly new, but he's calling the people back to what God's priority was and saying, you know, God doesn't require sacrifices. He's not interested in, you know, how many sacrificial lambs you offer, but he is interested in your heart. And so the prophet's role was to call people back to the heart. Um, so what do I gain if I read these books? Firstly, the most important thing is that you understand, get an understanding of God's heart. Um, it's reading these books uh, is a, a, a clarion call to all of us to bring us back to what's truly important, as we just saw in Micah 6, 8. It's so easy even today to kid ourselves that, you know, other things are more important than justice and mercy and kindness. But the prophets call us back to that and say, no, this is what God is really interested in. Interestingly, Jesus himself ministered in the same spirit as the Old Testament prophets. Um, especially in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see this. Um, he was especially in his dealings with the Pharisees. He uh, played a role very similar to the Old Testament prophets. For example, Matthew 9.13, we get this remarkable statement where Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And when I read that, this one, that's actually a quote from Hosea, right? Interesting there, isn't it? Jesus says, go and learn what this means. You've read it in the past. It's in your scriptures. It's black and white. But you obviously don't know what it means. Go and learn what it means. And when you've learned, come back and then talk. Then we'll talk about things. Isn't that an amazing thing for a man to say? That's what Jesus said to the religious authorities of his day. Go and learn what it means in the prophets. So Jesus was a, fan, uh, was a huge fan of the prophets. Who? Who are the prophets? Well, most of the books actually tell you who they are and when they were ministering. So you can get a learn. You can learn a lot from uh, from the context by looking at the start of the books, um, usually in the first few verses. Um, how do you read it? Well, we need to understand the context of the ministry. We need to listen to the heart of the matter. An important thing there to realise is that. The prophets wrote in both prose and poetry. In fact, when we say poetry, probably, I think, it was song. Um, because you've got to bear in mind they were talking in, a, in a, a, a culture that was largely illiterate, so people wouldn't be able to read their messages, the common people. But if you teach people a song, that can get into their heart. But either way, whether it's a poem or a song, it's meant to go into the heart, isn't it, rather than into the mind. I mean, mind is important, heart is important, but, but don't confuse the two. And so understand the context, understand what they're writing, and enjoy. Okay, let me have a glass of water and 
the final point we're going to make, I want to look at the last 10 minutes, one of my favourite books, and hopefully it'll become one of your favourite books, which is the book of Jeremiah. An amazing story, a very personal story, um, and one in which God speaks very, very clearly. Um, first, we need to talk about politics. Not our politics, but his politics. Um, what was the context in which Jeremiah lived and ministered? Because the context is vitally important. To do that, I want to go on to the next uh, chart, uh, next, next page, which is a chart. This chart, if you can read it, gives the history of Judah in very broad terms for the last hundred years before disaster hit them. So we're talking about uh, 715 BCE at the start, which is about 2,700 years ago, so a bit before my time and a bit before everyone else's time. But at that time, we have a man called Hezekiah who was king, and he was probably the last truly good king uh, in, in the kingdom of Judah. Um, actually, he wasn't the last good king, but his period was the last period in which there was true goodness. In, you know, when there was a real revival going on, when the people were obeying God from the heart. He died in 687 BC, and he was followed by Manasseh. I've got him in black because Manasseh was arguably one of the most evil kings who lived and reigned in Judah. So after the, the, the good came the very bad. He was a man who was so evil that he sacrificed his own children in the fire. And in fact... Um, and he reigned for about 50 years, so it was a, a long and dark period. In fact, the, the prophets say that such was the sin of Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, that God was going to upturn the whole nation and wipe it clean like a man wipes clean a bowl. That's what God said, right? So it was a terrible, terrible time. In fact, even in, when in the later years of his life Manasseh repented of his sin, yet it was not enough to actually change the fate of his nation, which is very sobering indeed. After Manasseh came the last good king, Josiah, who became king at a very young age. And I've got him in white with a few black dots because although he was a good king and, and, and he instituted a lot of reforms from the top down, the prophet Jeremiah tells us that these reforms actually didn't filter down to the people. So the people were still heavily influenced by the evil times of Manasseh, and so uh, there was not true repentance going on. So the king at the head was good, but the people underneath him were not obedient to that message. And after him came uh, various sons and one grandson of Josiah, who reigned from 609 to 587 BC, and that was followed by disaster when Jerusalem was totally destroyed and the people went into exile. So that was the, the context. Now, if we go to the next slide, we'll see that what was God was doing at that time in terms of prophetic ministry. We see that at the time of Hezekiah, we had Isaiah writing. So he was writing in a totally different context. The main crisis in Hezekiah's time was that um, the nation was invaded by the powerful Assyrians, and, uh, and Hezekiah encouraged the people to trust in God, and as a result, a marvellous victory was won. Right? So that was a very positive outcome because the people chose to trust in God. 
Um, the prophet Jeremiah, who we're talking about, started his ministry uh, in about 630 BC, um, and he prophesied right through for a period of about 40 years, right through to the end when the exile happened. And then during the exile, the main prophet who spoke in that period was Ezekiel. So at all of these times, God was raising up men, and there were other prophets as well, but these were the main ones that God was raising up to speak to the people and bring them correction and direction in their life. So now, let's bring on to the next slide. Here's the interesting one. This, it's a bit hard to see, this is the political map of 631 BC according to an encyclopedia. Now, I don't know, it's not that easy to see, but you can see Egypt down the bottom with the Nile, right? Uh, you can see just above that is Jerusalem in the light green, and the rest of the map is covered in dark green and light green. And that represents the vast Assyrian Empire. The darkest green was the actual provinces of Assyria, the lighter shades were the occupied nations. So uh, Judah was occupied, and the vast empire uh, sprayed out to the north, right? So they were a subject people, uh, and right to the north was uh, the evil Assyrian Empire that, that uh, had controlled them. Remember I told you that 100 years before, the Assyrian Empire had not only... Uh, um, they, they tried to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and succeeded and completely wiped it out, but they had not succeeded in wiping out Judah because God had intervened. Okay. Let's go to the next slide. So that's the, the, the main history. We've got this, this dark time happening with King Manasseh, uh, followed by uh, a, a too little, too late revival uh, under Josiah. What was God's response to all of this? Well, this, I think is the most fascinating story uh, in the whole of Scripture. God chose a child. By a child, I meant a young boy of about 14, somewhere between 14 and 18. He certainly was a child. I see we've got a couple of young people. I'm not quite sure exactly how old they are. Um, but that sort of age range, like you guys here, right? God decided that his answer to the problems of the nation was a child. And he took that child and he called him and he said, I am calling you to be a prophet to the nations. You are going to tear down and destroy some nations. You're going to build up and encourage others. But that is your calling. So this young man, who would have been maybe 14 or 15, for the next 40 years, that was his life, preaching that message. He was also told, no one will believe you. No one will believe you. For the first 23 years, Jeremiah preached. If we go to the, the, the next um, yeah. So there's Jeremiah call as a young boy. Go to the next one, we'll see that for the first 23 years of his ministry, he was basically saying a message that there is disaster coming from the north. Can we have a look at the next slide? Yep, okay, which I call the time of warning. Now, here's the interesting thing. God is a bit tricky sometimes. Remember the map I showed you of the political situation 
If, I, if you're living in that situation and I said disaster is coming from the north, what would you think I'd be talking about? The Assyrians, right? You look to the north, there's nothing but Assyrians. That's all there is. So Jeremiah was preaching disaster is coming from the north. And I'm sure the people assumed that he meant the Assyrians, and I'm sure even Jeremiah probably assumed that he meant the Assyrians. But God didn't say that. He just said from the north. The message was during a period of prosperity that the disaster is coming from the north, turn to God in true repentance. For 23 years they mocked and ignored him because there was prosperity, but there was another reason why they ignored him too. You see, straight away as soon as he started preaching, the Assyrian Empire started collapsing, fracturing. As soon as it started fracturing, the Egyptians to the south decided it was their opportunity to take control of certain territories. So they started uh, getting involved politically. And the whole worldly situation, which was completely simple, suddenly became very, very complicated. So it looked like what Jeremiah was saying had no chance of being fulfilled, and so people ignored him. The turning point happened... 23 years into his ministry. So we're talking now, Jeremiah has probably been preaching this message for 23 years, so he's probably about 40, uh, late 30s. And suddenly God says, in the north, what happened in the north was that the Assyrian Empire had finally disintegrated into civil war, and there was a war between a Babylonian faction and another faction, and suddenly the Babylonian faction became victorious and the king of the Babylonians suddenly died after having suddenly taken control of the whole Assyrian Empire. He suddenly dies and leaves his empire to his young son who's aged 18. I mean, how's that, eh? You become 18 and suddenly your father dies and leaves you as as an inheritance, the whole of the Assyrian Empire. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, God speaks to Jeremiah and says, hey, It's not the Assyrians you've got to worry about, mate. It's the Babylonians. I am going to give this country into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar for 70 years. It is now too late to repent. I've been warning you for 23 years. The time has come and gone. You now have basically two choices. You either submit to Nebuchadnezzar and live, or you fight and you die. Those are the two choices. You can imagine how that went down. Jeremiah became even more unpopular, but his words started to come true. Uh, We had the period, what I call the downfall, the next uh, uh, 18 years. So the kingdom continued to decline. During this time, Jeremiah's message was, do not trust your false prophets. Judgment is inevitable. Submit to Nebuchadnezzar and you will live, fight and you will die. But there is hope for renewal because after 70 years, you will come back and on into all eternity, you'll be able to live with God. God, There is going to be a time of restoration and revival at the end of that 70 years. So that was God's response. At the end of that, by the way, the last stage, straight after the exile, when it was clear that everything Jeremiah had said uh, came true. It doesn't say this in the book, but history tells us that Jeremiah was probably executed as a traitor. So imagine that. Age 13, called to be a prophet, 
minister for 40 years, nobody believes you. As soon as everything comes true, they, they execute you. Aged about 50. Not what you would call the ideal life anyone, any of us would choose, but that was the life that Jeremiah had. So what was the people's response? At every step of the way, Jeremiah was mocked, abused and rejected. He remained faithful to his post for 40 years, even refusing to take a plus retirement job from the Babylonians. Remember when the Babylonians invaded Judah at the end, they said, um, you know, God has been speaking through you, you know, telling us that Babylon was going to be successful. Come to Babylon and we'll give you a nice retirement. Jeremiah said, no, I want to stay with my people, the people who are going to kill him as a traitor, but my job is to stay with them. Amazing love and faithfulness. So what do we gain through reading the book of Jeremiah? Firstly, the devastating effects of idolatry. I've talked at length in the past about the sin of idolatry, but it's the most devastating sin when God's people turn away from the truth and start lying about God, and uh, you know, it comes into a situation where, where, uh, um, where it's impossible for people to turn back. So the other thing we learn from the book of Jeremiah is God's incredible mercy to hard-hearted sinners. You read through the book and it's clear that he tried everything, everything to turn the people away. Everything. And yet at each step of the way, they refused to listen. So God has incredible mercy, but the inevitability of judgment when we harden our hearts. Ultimately, God is in control of history. The story of Jeremiah shows that God was one step ahead, probably ten steps ahead of the people at every step of the way, yearning for them to come back to him, speaking through Jeremiah, speaking through circumstances, but they would not listen. So if we will not learn from kindness, we must learn from his justice. It's incredible when we actually read the story of Jeremiah. I think, it, to me, it builds up faith in a very real way. Sometimes we build up our faith in a very superficial way, by thinking that everything's going to be okay. But often it's through hard times that we actually need to learn the solid truth of God's love, you know. Some of the most famous verses in the Bible, words that we sing in a song, are found in the book of Lamentations. Uh, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Beautiful words. You know, Lamentations was written by Jeremiah after the destruction of his nation. After 40 years of preaching judgment, of, pre of calling the people to repent and turn back, and seeing them time after time refuse God's voice until they got destroyed, until the city was, was brought to a heap of rubble where the mothers ate their children out of starvation. That's what it says. Total city destroyed, yet Jeremiah could walk through the streets of that city and he could say, yet it is because of the Lord's great love that we are not consumed there is a remnant that survives. And that is what he meant when he said, you read the context in, in Lamentations, the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, 
for his great love is new every morning. How could he say that? How could he say that looking around a, a country that was devastated? He could say it because he knew his God. He had not only heard what God said, he had heard the heart behind what God was saying all those years. And he knew that God was saying, if only you will turn, I will save you. That is what we can learn from reading the book of Jeremiah. So challenge, uh, challenge for the week. Those of you who have time to read, my challenge is to read or listen to the book of Jeremiah. Just giving you a, 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 a keep that on because some people said yesterday, uh, last week, that they they um they couldn't didn't have enough time to write down the email address. So it's about seventy five pages. So it easily can be read. Uh, I said I'm not asking you to do a an in depth study or write a book report on or anything like that. Just read it the way you would read a, a novel or a story. It's about half the length of an average novel. It's not hard to read. You know, just enjoy it. Uh, I've got some questions you can ask yourself as you read it. Uh, so again, if you email me, I can send you copies of those questions. But let's get reading the Word of God and get some depth into our lives. Amen.